Becky, look at her banner. It's beauty, bitch. Warning, this show contains adult content, strong language, mature themes, discussions of sexuality, politics, triggers, and <gasps> feminism. Listener discretion and or earphones are advised. Hey, welcome to Bitch Three, the podcast about badass women in history that were <clears throat> overlooked. I'm one of your hosts, Kelly McLean. Uh, I'm your other host, uh, Smarty Pants Lisa, but I want to point out that Kelly is the one that gave me that name. My ego is not that big. <laughs> <laughs> but we're in a place called Bitchtopia because being a bitch is a good thing. It is a good thing. Here in Bitchtopia... <laughs> We talk about feminism and relevant historical and political issues. My official title, not that I'm in love with titles or anything because I totally am, is Doctress of Bitchology. I'm also an astrologer and I write weekly horoscopes called Bitchscopes. I'm the official bitch historian, which is a cool title if you're into that sort of thing, which I am. Um, <laughs> I have a degree in photocommunications, but I did minor in uh, literature and history, which makes me a big nerd about all things historical and mythological and stuff like that. Yay. She's also a Capricorn, because that matters around here. I'm an Aquarius. Go humanity. <laughs> so thanks for listening. We talk about all the biggest, baddest bitches all throughout history. Probably most of them you never heard of because they got left out of books. And that's yep. why we started this podcast. But please subscribe and review, particularly on Spotify. I know you might not be happy with Spotify right at this yeah, moment. Exactly. That's okay. Um, Apple, anywhere you get your podcast. If you have a place where you get your podcast that we're not on, let us know. And we'll, you know, head on Make over. Make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, Spotify, that's a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. I uh, I kind of went off on uh, Spotify and the Joe Rogan controversy on Instagram the other day. Because, well, Joe showed us who he was a long time ago. Like the, the Maya Angelou um, quote, believe people when they show you who they are the first time. Right. They probably butchered that quote, but it's a good paraphrase anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he showed us who he was a long time ago and I'm not trying to like disparage or talk complete shit about Joe Rogan. I don't get it. I don't see why he's such a big deal. I don't understand how people listen to a three hour fucking podcast from this guy, but whatever. I think, you know, you don't accidentally use the N word over and over and over with the best of intentions. Give me a fucking break. So, you know, <laughs> with Spotify decided- 13 shows, if it was one show. Okay. Right. Right. I, like, they t- I think it was 113 that they eventually took off because of um, slurs and things that, you know. But he did it with the buzz and turns, yeah, whatever. And, you know, so then Spotify decides to do this multi-million dollar bullshit with him that he knew. I mean, they knew. And, you know, I, I don't know. I'm very jaded. I watched a Bill Cosby documentary yesterday. And, you know, people knew. And I'm just over the fucking patriarchy and all their million dollar dirty deals. Anyway, um, (laughs) I still love Spotify. I just think that they, I just think they put all their stupid eggs in the Joe Rogan basket. And um, they have a couple of podcasters that they have done major, major deals with. And um, not that I'm jealous because I totally am, (laughs) but I just don't, I don't get it with the, the two that I'm thinking of. So whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, like, I don't think that I, first of all, I've never listened to Joe Rogan. Like, I've heard a few clips of his show right. or that really turned me off to him. So I haven't listened. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm going on just basically a few clips that I've heard here and there. But I feel like somewhere back in the 80s, like, intellectualism mm-hmm. got to be a dirty word. Mm-hmm. It meant you're uppity, it meant you're arrogant, and somehow that turned into sort of a cult of ignorance, where mm-hmm. my opinion is as relevant as your PhD, which is not the case, generally speaking, depending on the subject, I guess. 
Um, and I don't know. I don't, and I think it continues to be big money, unfortunately. Um, sharing uh, ugliness and sharing false information content, continues to make money. Um, and even when, you know, somebody like Alex Jones, who made a living sharing fake news, and even in his, like in his own court case against his wife, his divorce against his wife said, you know, she tried to use that as a, you know, reason why he shouldn't have the kids or reason why this. And he's just like, I don't really believe any of that stuff. I'm just an entertainer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But uh, even after that, he uh, continues to be big in that uh, crowd, let's say. Yeah. I don't know. I can't, I can't personally imagine you know, doing something with any sort of vigor or passion or interest that I didn't really believe strongly in, but that's just me, I guess. I, I well, and just pandering to the lowest common denominator just is not, that ain't my thing. No, not at all. And then the other thing is, you know, like journalism, like I don't think all podcasts need to be journalistic for sure, no. but like every blogger is a journalist. Now all journalists are editorial and, you know, all the Joe Rogans of the world act like, and the, oh God, and the Adam Carollas, oh my God, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, act like they fucking know things and, and, you know, they know things, but they're just wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. I just, so I'm going to, sh- I'm going to share this, this source because I don't know if everybody, sorry, go on. No, I was just saying, I just don't get that whole locker room intellectualism, quote unquote. It's just, yeah. uh, so the, I'm going to share this source cause I don't know if everybody knows it, but, uh, if you want to look something up, whether it's about health, whether it's about, uh, something that happened in history. What, I mean, could be about anything. Instead of going to Google, go to scholar.google.com. Instead of google.com, scholar.google.com is something that they use in academia, basically, so that, I don't know if you all remember, like when you were in college, there was the MLA handbook and you had to have scholarly sources, God. which means, you know, not a blogger, <laughs> not Newsweek and not, you know, not any kind of popular journal publication or whatever but if you go to scholar.google.com you'll find in there you know publications from universities publications the actual studies you can read the actual you I know, can't I, believe you're just telling me this this is fantastic <laughs> do, nerd news I do a lot of research for health for my day job or whatever so I you know if I want to read about a study about COPD or read about a study about this or that Sometimes I'll find an article that says, you know, this is good for COPD. So then I'll go into scholar.google.com and see if I can find the study and what the actual results were. What were their criteria? What did they actually study? What were the results? What were there any peer reviews? That kind of thing. It's dry reading. This, no this pictures. bitch is, is why I named her Smarty Pants. <laughs> it's kind of dry reading. There are no pretty pictures or anything. But if you want to find the real shit and you're willing to dig, that's where to find it. I used to subscribe to the the Journal of American Medicine, wait, mm. Journal of American, the JAMA. JAMA, yep. JAMA um, podcast. I, I mean, I still have it. I just haven't listened to it in a while, but that's how nerdy I am. Um, <laughs> I'd also like to point out that I'm so old that when I was in college, the internet just barely existed. Like, there was no bloggers. There wasn't any of that. We still yeah. used a card catalog. I love <laughs> but the I was card catalog. Right on the cutting edge I have there. very fond memories of the card catalog. Do card catalogs still exist? I feel like the smell and the the, the tactileness of the card. I I want to go to a library and put my hands in a card catalog. Okay, now let's see how compatible we are as podcast mates. <laughs> okay, are you <laughs> a Dewey Decimal girl or Library of Congress girl? Oh. Probably Dewey. I don't think I know enough to Yay. know. Yay! <laughs> yeah. We can continue to do this podcast together, so that's good. What's the difference? It's just a different filing system. Dewey Decimal System is, it's kind of more, actually Library of Congress kind of makes more sense because it's right. just more, um, you know, the way it divides up into categories, history, yeah. science, you know, whatever. Dewey Decimal is, uh, you just have to know what the number represents instead of saying it's SCI for science or, you know, whatever it's like yeah. 1578 or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, my job at my work study job when I was in college was a uh, research assistant at the library to this day, still my favorite job. I was making I pretty much no money, but I love that job. Yeah. I have a friend who has a, she must have a master's degree and, um, you know, she's looking for her dream librarian job. And she's had, you know, a few in different cities because um, her husband's military. But anyway, um, apparently librarian jobs, when you can find them, don't really pay that much for master's degrees. Shocking, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. 
I feel, I mean, this is probably maybe an unpopular opinion, but I feel like teachers and librarians, people like that don't make a lot of money because traditionally those are jobs. Those are girl jobs. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I agree. So well, I feel and I've like said this before, but I'm in California, the part of California that I'm in. Um, teachers make 70 or $80,000 a year. So I'm sorry to the teachers who are listening to this, who just spit at me, but um, I know teachers in other parts of the country don't make very much money, but here where I am, it's kind of hard to hear the whining. <laughs> yeah, the teachers and the teachers and where I live make probably about, you know, 35 or 40 to start, yeah. but that's not a whole lot to live where I live. I no, mean, not at all. Well, to start here, they make yeah. at least 60. But in California, is that a lot? Um, yeah, it's more than I was making when I was working full time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not chump change. Yeah, because here it's definitely not homeownership money. And it's and it's probably, you know, not, okay, decent apartment money. But if you, I, are you raising a family on that? I don't know. Like, you know, if you if it's just you, you're a single person. Who, right. You know. Yeah. But I don't know if you're a single mom with two kids, if you're getting by very well on that. Mm -mm. No. But I mean, I was a single mom with two kids, probably making about 35. So yeah, where I am, I'm not in LA or Southern California because that's just a whole other hell show down there. But in Northern <laughs> California, I'm, I'm in Central California where the cost of living is still somewhat reasonable. Right. Um, and California is such an, a weird anomaly anyway, so fuck California. But um, yeah, I just, anyway, we just lost all our teacher fans. Sorry. Um, <laughs> cool. Let's get back to some feminism before I fuck up everything. Um, so today is February 10th, year 2022 of our Lord. Um, and apparently today the Violence Against Women Act finally made some progress. Um, if you are on social media, you may have seen Angelina Jolie give a very moving um, speech to Congress. And um, the Violence Against Women Act has been... Um, hung up in the political patriarchal pinball machine for quite a while. Um, let me see if I can pull up what I said about it. I don't, uh, why is it something that has to get re-voted? Like, well, I don't know. Like, it in and let's have to reaffirm it. It's like, why? Like, yeah. just, those things so, don't change. It passed in 1994. It's been reauthorized three times until 2018. Hmm. What's happening in 2018, kids? Huh. Yeah. The Orange Goblin. This, um, yeah, this act, I don't really understand it either. But anyway, um, they were really hung up on some fucking stupid mansplaining details about it. I don't know why it it's done so... part. Oh, that that's was... the boyfriend clause. Yes. Yeah. Jesus Christ. It's more important that an, an ex-boyfriend have access to his gun rights than to keep women and children safe. What? What? I don't. I don't know why it is so hard to give a shit about violence against women in this country. It's gross. But anyway, so they many did strike. Envy is the problem. But anyway, yeah, go on. Exactly. They did strike a bipartisan deal. Um, without the gun part. Without yeah. it, yeah. However, I think I have a number about the gun part. Let me just start by saying, you know, I'm not anti-gun. <laughs> If I'm very pro gun rights. Okay. Plenty of people in my family hunt. I yeah, live alone. And so, you know, I wouldn't advise coming to my house uninvited through a window. Let's just put it that way. Um, but the presence of a gun in domestic violence situation. This is this is a statistic from the NCADV, National Center Against Domestic Violence.org. Um a <laughs> now I lost my place. Um <laughs> The presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. Not 5%, 500%. Wow. So if you've already been threatened, you've already been stalked. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, you know, you're already uh, teetering on, on a, you know, mental breakdown edge. So you don't need to have a gun right at that moment. Maybe if you've gone through some therapy, we can look at it again later. But right now, you know, I don't, in my opinion, don't need to have a gun right this second. I would remember a few years ago, there was um, some act or legislation that was kind of a hot topic. I'm pretty sure it was during the 
Trump years, um, that they removed a portion of the the bill, the law, whatever it was. Sorry, I don't remember um, about stalking, mm-hmm. which was a significant setback. Um, and having been stalked by an ex myself, it's very disturbing. So, um, yeah, I just don't know why it's so hard to give a shit. Well, I do because patriarchy. But anyway. Well, I'm still surprised. I don't know why I'm surprised anymore, but I'm also still surprised about how often women are punished mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. doing what they have to do to get out of that situation, whether it is cause physical harm, whether it's killing the person, whether it's mm-hmm. packing up in the middle of the night and taking everything that you can carry or, you know, whatever it is. But there is a um, lady in Oklahoma that just had this just happened. Her boyfriend actually killed her son. Mm-hmm. She's on the hook for that, even though yeah. she wasn't even home at the time. That's insane. You know, but I mean, it just things like that happen. And Centoya Brown, is that her name? Centoya Brown? Kill, killed the person who was sex trafficking her. She tried to escape several times. Oh, yeah, I remember that story. Eat her to death, whatever. And she yeah. finally thought that the only way that she could get away from this ever was to kill the person. She killed the person. She had witnesses, you know, that, you know, confirmed all of that, that she was getting sex, sex trafficked and that she was threatened and she was beaten and all these things. And she's still. Well, they try, they try um, women in those situations as prostitutes, which is illegal. Right. It's very complicated. It's a whole show unto itself. And also the ER fucking A, the Equal Rights Amendment is still not a fucking amendment. It's been in the pinball machine since 1972, just pinging around in the fucking pants of the patriarchy. It's gross. Get bent over the furniture, Phyllis. Right? So, anyway, should we get on with, like, the actual show? Sure. Now that we're pissed off. This, <laughs> now that we're all fired up, we Don't have... Take this, is one, this is one of my favorite types of shows where we talk about people that you may or may not have heard of, not, not so well known. I, I had not heard of... Well, I'd heard of one of them. No, two of them. I, I'd heard of a few of them, but I, yeah, there's a lot of women. I mean, we've talked about women on here. That's like, Oh, they did this amazing thing. We don't really know their name or we don't know their last name. It's like, how does this yeah. happen? Yeah. Especially the ancient ones. But yeah, this is kind of a cool one because the vast majority of the, the women that we're talking about in tonight's show is, or I'm sorry, are from like the fifties and sixties, which is such a civil rights ripe era. And their names are just kind of, lost in the shuffle, but a lot of them are, you know, grassroots movement type, um, fighters and I love it. So yeah, we have a pretty loaded show now that we've, so this is part one of black, black history, hidden heroes as well. Yes. Yes. Black history month, which should be every month, by the way. Anyway, black history is American history. Let's just start by saying that, but go on. So I guess we should have talked about this before we started recording. I will kind of introduce each gal <laughs> okay, behind the scenes. <laughs> and then um, we'll discuss and we'll just kind of wing it. Does that work for you? Yeah, it's fine. Um, hopefully I don't screw up this woman's name. So first lady on the, I was going to say docket. Is that good? Docket list, whatever. On the badass list this evening is Mary McLeod Bethune. Am I saying that correctly? I think so, yep. She was an educator and an activist in 1929. She co-founded the Bethune-Cookman College. In 1924, she was elected president of the National Association of Colored Women's Club. And in 1935, she became the founding president of the National Council of Negro Women. 1940, she was president of the NAACP. Wow. And helped create the Women's Army Corps. And you have some other facts about her, I believe. <laughs> Factoids. Uh, first of all, I amazingly, she was still, you know, daughter of slaves. Mm-hmm. We're not too far removed from people who... For real. Grew up, yeah. Um, even the, the college that she founded is still used as one of the educational standards for historical black colleges and universities today. Um, and she became a advisor to FDR, uh, mm-hmm. which gave African-Americans... Uh, you know, an advocate in government. That's amazing. But she, yeah, she was born in 1875, so not too long after the Civil War ended um, in the South, South Carolina. She was one of 17 kids. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. And after the Civil War, her mom was freed, but she continued to work for her former owner 
uh, until she could buy the land on which um, the family grew cotton. So I'm just always hung up on 17 kids. Like, <laughs> how does your uterus not fall out at some point? Well, I have, I have a friend whose uterus was well. starting to fall out at like kid five. I, I don't, what? Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, irrelevant. <laughs> Moving on, Kelly. So, yeah, during that time, there was a lot, you know, it was after it was during Reconstruction, and there was a lot of separate but equal education going on, which was uh, separate but far from equal. Um, and so, but she was kind of benefiting from that system still. She could still at least learn how to read and, you know, go to school. Um, but generally, a lot of black uh, girls at that time were sort of either going to be missionaries or uh, sex workers <laughs> or domestics. Yeah. That's pretty, you know, they didn't have a lot of whole options, a whole lot of options, but right. she was smart and she, nobody wanted to sponsor her as a missionary. So she actually became an educator. Hmm. Um, as she had one son, uh, her marriage didn't last very long. And so she was divorced when her son was just about five. So to support him, she opened a boarding school. Um, it was called the Daytona beach literary and industrial school training for Negro girls. So, you know, basically industrial training for them so they could support themselves. Um, and eventually that became a college that became Bethune College, which eventually merged with an all male college called Cookman Institute. And that became the Bethune Cookman College in, in 1929. Hmm. Um, so during this time, like in 1920, the women finally got the right to vote. Um through, you know, a lot of struggle and strife. And so she began organizing voting drives. Um, in 1924, she was the president of National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. And in 1935, she was the founding president of National Council of Negro Women. Uh, and during this time, just, we've kind of talked about this before, um, is kind of around the time when also the Republicans and the Democrats sort of switched sides. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Um, so during that time, the Republicans, the Lincoln Republicans were trying to, you know, enact all these measures to, they were like, they're pretty much ruling the North, the Republicans were right. ruling the North, and they were trying to enact all these policies and, and programs to help the freed slaves and help, you know, all these things. And so they were big government. They were trying to like enact all these policies, trying to force Southern Democrats to, you know, play nice, separate but equal and all that other stuff. Yeah. Um, and expand federal power, pretty much. Um, they funded things, this federal power that they, you know, the programs that they funded include uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, the main reason why yours truly is sitting here in Denver, Colorado today, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the state university system, the settlement of the West by homesteaders, uh, national currency, and a protective tariff to protect, protect the national domestic product, things like that. Um, so during that time, the Democrats who dominated the South opposed those measures and they thought big government was like wrong because basically all the big government was doing at that point was forcing them to do things they didn't want to do. Yeah. So, um, you know, they started to, they were opposing those things. So that was the Democrats and Republicans in the late 1800s. Well, yeah. fast forward to like 1929, the stock market crashed and that brought on the Great Depression. Um, and so finally in 1936, so the country's in a whole world of hurt but in 1936 a democrat fdr um got elected he got or he got he got re-elected um because his new deal measures that were going on during the depression um you know were really bringing the country up there you know all the infrastructure things that he was able to do and things like that so they started sort of started switching where the democrats now were trying to enact all these social programs mm -hmm. and the republicans were like no 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 <laughs> so that's kind of when they switched platforms or whatever. But anyway, um, getting back to Miss Bethune, Ms. Bethune, uh, FDR put her on his unofficial black cabinet. He had a he had a bunch of advisors um, that were helping him, you know, try to figure out how do we get the South back, sort of, you know. Right. How do we reunite with the South? Basically, things are very divisive and sort of, you know, this may sound familiar. Mm-mm. Um, but, uh, he was, she was one of his advisors that he really listened closely to. Um, she organized a conference on problems, black, black use and just, and, you know, would face throughout in the cities. Um, all the people that were coming from the rural areas that had no jobs into the cities and they, 
still experienced discrimination and lynching even during that time. Uh, in 1940, she became the vice president of the NAACP. Damn. Uh, in 1942, she was on put on the advisory board of the Women's Army Corps uh, that you talked about earlier. And the, even the next president utilized her, um, Harry Truman, 1945. Um, she was the only woman of color at the founding conference of the United Nations. Um, wow. But she was also an entrepreneur, even though if for her government and activism work, she uh, co-owned a resort in Daytona, Florida. And she was the co-founder of the Central Life Insurance Company of Tampa. Damn. She is a busy lady. Damn, sis. Wow. That's amazing. Busy, busy I, lady. I feel lazy. <laughs> I feel, yeah, a lady like that can make you feel lazy. Damn. I want to know what her sign was. <laughs> we, said, we always say we're going to look up signs before we start, I but we don't. So 710, she was a cancer, right? Uh, she was no moving sideways crab, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. Um, yeah, there's never birth times available on these older stories true, though true which frustrates me um all right next up we have the lovely barbara smith conrad who was admitted to the university of texas in 1956 where she sang opera and was awarded the lead in a university musical her role was revoked three days prior to the opening day because she was black Ooh, damn. <laughs> Damn, Texas pisses me off me. just reading it. She later went on to sing with leading orchestras, including the New York Philharmonic. Yeah. And I want to say that year again, 1956. This yeah, exactly. Yes, still going on. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. It was not that long ago. No. So let me read a little bit about her. Yeah. She was internationally acclaimed mezzo-soprano and educator. I feel like speaking like this because opera. Um, she was <laughs> denied the, oh, yes, good idea. She was denied the opportunity to perform um, due to her race, but the university and the state have since recognized her talents and her contributions to the struggle for civil rights. In 1985, Conrad visited Austin for the first time since graduation to accept the University of Te Texas Distinguished Alumnus Award. In 2009, the Texas House passed a resolution to honor Barbara Conrad Smith 52 years after it pushed for her removal from the College of Fine Arts production. I don't know, I, I, I would still be bitter. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, okay. thanks. Um, let's see what else. Uh, let's see. In 1956, a 19-year-old girl from a small east town in Texas arrived in Austin, blah, blah, blah. This is a little bit about her. Um, she was unique in two important ways. She was one of 104 African-Americans African enrolled in the University of Texas in its first year as a desegregated institution, and she was a remarkably talented singer. These two factors put Smith at the center of a, controvers a controversy over civil rights and desegregation in 1957. Um, apparently, the Ku Klux Klan showed up and marched openly down Congress Avenue. <laughs> God. Um, once news of Smith's casting had spread, she began receiving threatening calls. She was accosted on campus, a man who spat in her face. Um, eventually, the uproar caught the attention of the Texas legislature, which is a fucking miracle, where Smith's own representative from East Texas, Joe Chapman, threatened cuts in the university's appropriation if Smith were allowed to perform. Thanks, Joe. Fucker. Ultimately... <laughs> University of Texas president Logan Wilson decided to remove Smith from the role, leaving her feeling betrayed, but determined to continue her education. After the initial shock and hurt had passed, she told the Daily Texan, I began to realize that the ultimate success of integration at the university was much more important than my appearance in the opera. Uh, Harry Belafonte heard about all of this, offered to fund her training at the institution of her choice if she left Texas. I would have, but Conrad chose to complete her education at UT, recalling later that nobody could run me out of my home state. Well, all right, good, good for you, okay. girl. After graduation, she began an illustrious career in New York, changed her name to Conrad in 1959. She sang with the Metropolitan Opera in New York for eight years, worked with leading conductors such as Lauren, how do you say that, Mazel, 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 sorry, Leonard Bernstein, James Levine and performed throughout the United States, Europe, Canada, and South America. She remains active as an artist and educator. You can get private vocal lessons in her Manhattan 
studio. I think I should go there. She probably kicked me out, but hey. Oh yeah, I I can't carry a note with a in a bucket with a big ass <laughs> handle. So she'd be like, "Girl, go back to vlogging." <laughs> yes. Uh, are we moving on to number three? Daisy Bates. Daisy Bates. Daisy was the president of the Arkansas chapter of the NAACP and started the Arkansas Weekly, one of the only black newspapers dedicated solely to the civil rights movement. Daisy was also heavily involved in the integration of schools and orchestrated the Little Rock Nine. And I think you have some deets. I do have some deets. And I just want to say the names of Little Rock Nine because they're always referred to as Little Rock Nine, mm -hmm. but I think we should know their names. So I'm going to say them right now. Right. Uh, Ernest Green, Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Thelma Mothershed, Melba Patillo or Patillo. I'm not sure how she pronounces it. Gloria Ray, Terrence Roberts, Jefferson Thomas, and Carlotta Wells. Uh, in 1957, when this all happened, they were just te young teenagers. They were between 15 and 17. Wow. So in 19, so this happened in 1957. But in 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka um, outlawed segregation in public schools. So um, you know they were, but then just because it was outlawed didn't mean they knew how they were going to integrate schools. It wasn't just like the next day. Right. You know, everybody started going to school together and it was fine. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, well, I feel like sometimes, you know how like oh, history definitely summer, whitewashes those details. Right. Well, this summer when, you know, Black Lives, Black Lives Matter was going on, people were like, it's all summer. Why is it like, over and over and over? It's like, OK, but I know you think that like Rosa Parks like didn't want to sit in the back of the bus. So people walked to work for a couple days and then everything changed. But that was like. That was like a like a year and a half process or whatever. It was same thing here. Is that 1954 they desegregated the schools? In 1957, um, and the first day of school, they organized this um, mm -hmm. integration basically. So they these the Little Rock Nine arrived at Central High School on September 3rd, 1957. However, this was such a big deal that they were just all these 15 to 17 year olds were trying to go to high school that the Arkansas National Guard was actually there. Right. Um, sent by Governor Orville Phobos, um, another prick, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he wanted to maintain a restorer. I shouldn't call him prick. Um, no, but the soldiers barred the African-American students from entering because God knows black people trying to get educated is dangerous. Terrible. So thank God the National Guard was there. <laughs> this is similar to um, Ruby Bridges in, uh, where was that? Uh, oh. Louisiana. Yeah, whenever I see that picture of Ruby Bridges and all those people with the shouting around her, like just the hatred and anger on the, the face of yeah. this, and then the men escorting this tiny little wickets. girl, I'm just like, yeah. really, people? I guess the so. men escorting her just gives me chills. Yeah. So, um, you know, they were turned away. So they, you know, the students were just like, okay. So they went home, <laughs> and then. More than so two like, weeks right. by, and then they tried to go in again. This is Central High School. They tried to go in again on September 23rd, um, and rioting broke out. Little Rock police took them took them out again for their safety. Uh, on the 25th, uh, the federal troops <laughs> were there. Eisenhower basically said, you know, he's not going to let mob rule, um, you know, overrule what the Supreme Court decided. So he sent federal troops there to to, to escort them in. So um, finally, the they left in October, and the federalized Arkansas National Guard troops they had to remain there the whole year, escorting these kids in daily, walking from class to class with these kids. Um, wow. But that That's was how, like, after a whole year, yeah. But um, you know, I'm not going to read it here. But if you go, so the school now, Central High School, is actually part of the National Park Service now. If you go to Arkansas, you can, you know, walk through the halls and see the, um, you know, the display that they've set up to, um, you know, remember that situation. Uh, the end of legal segregation, basically. Um, but if you go to nationalparkservice.gov, nps.gov, and look up Little Rock Nine, they have a really good, concise um, timeline of everything that went on and how that all happened. And the cool thing is, at the end of it, they have um, what happened to all the students. 
a lot of them went on to be educators. Some of them had masters or PhDs even. Some of the ladies, one of the ladies went on to work on a robotics program. Um, so it's pretty cool to read about, you know, where, what happened to them after they graduated, yeah. from, went through all this and basically led the way of desegregation through all the schools. So, so Daisy Bates was, um, what's the word? But she was, she helped organize the Little Rock Nine. She, right. um, drove the students to school, tried to make sure they were protected, was just right. kind of like on the front lines of organizing this she, integration yep, effort. Was, she yeah she was a civil rights organizer she was like actually owner of a newspaper the arkansas weekly right um but she's used her voice to really you know um talk about civil rights movement the naacp she worked with um i think we have to start out with the fact that when she was three her mother was killed by three white men so yeah. her she life raised, raised started out here. with you know violence and racism like in her face and then she was in um she adopted where did i read that foster care she, yeah she was raised in foster care pretty yeah much. okay um, amazing but yeah she you know she was a civil rights organizer throughout her entire life and her you know she just had a very integral role in, in you know desegregating integration she had to shut down the newspaper at some point because of the threats that she was receiving she was super popular in town right <laughs> not she actually um she was invited to speak at the March on Washington in 1963, Jobs and Freedom March. Mm. Um, in 1968, she moved to Arkansas. Uh, the majority black town was impoverished, lacked economic resources. And when she arrived, she used her organizational skills to put together residents and improve the community. Nice. Um, she, I think she lived in Arkansas her whole life. She died November yeah. 4th, 1999. And for her work, the state of Arkansas proclaimed the third Monday in February. So coming up here, Daisy Gatson Bates Day. Nice. She was posthumously awarded the Medal of Freedom in 1999. Nice. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Next up, we have, where are we? Alice Coachman. Yep. Alice Coachman was the first black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. In 1948, she broke the world record for the high jump at five feet, six and one eighth inches. She then supported young athletes, helping them achieve new heights in the athletic world. This is timely, seeing as how the Olympics are now. And still, women's garments oh God. Are, being, are being discriminated against. Uh, you know, so, so many athletes are being in uh, Olympic sports right now. Yeah, athletes are being disqualified because their clothing's too loose, or this, or that. But it's mostly the women that it's happening to. Although I guess it did happen today to one of the guys in the, um, he's a skier, I think. What happened? Yeah, it continues. To, I mean, I don't know. Olympic sports continue to be inspiring yet ridiculous sometimes. So. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember, wasn't there, isn't there a story of a sexual assault happening in the Olympic news circles right now. Yeah. Chinese, Olympics, Chinese, Chinese tennis player. Yeah. Peng. Peng yeah. I don't really know the whole story. I've just seen the headlines. And then I've seen oh. all these crazy headlines about the quarantine situation. It's, I don't know. Why are we in China? Why? I, I just I, yeah. don't get it. I, I don't I fucking understand why this was thought to be a good idea for anyone and it's just weird and oh my god so many like civil rights violations happening behind the scenes and it's just ugh. so yeah the well the tennis player came out and said that she was actually sexually assaulted by uh or that she was continue continually sexually assaulted by somebody I, I think it was in the training staff or the coaching staff or whatever mm. and then she disappeared for a long time. Mm. And so there were a lot of female tennis players, especially Serena and um, Venus Williams wearing shirts saying, where is Peng Shui? Where's and Peng? so I remember that. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Um, and then when they were in China, they tried to ban the shirts and all that stuff. And then finally she reappeared. I mean, thankfully, I guess she's still alive, but then she's just yeah. like, no, I wasn't sexually assaulted. That was a whole just big misunderstanding. Oh, jeez. That's so weird. I I don't know where they threatened her fan. I don't know what happened, but uh, she's 
basically. Well, something happened. Something, I mean, I don't know if they threatened her family or threatened her or what happened, but yeah. Somebody got to her in China. Yeah. That's not even really hard to imagine. Right. Um, I mean, I shouldn't talk shit about China because the United States is a hot ass fucking mess, but you know, China's got a few more human rights violations on its head right now than ever, um, than we do. Um, and it's unfortunate that we're so in bed with them economically that we don't speak out on it as much as we used to or could or should. I mean, so strange. Yeah. So strange. Um, all right, let's move on. Okay. I love this gal's name. Fanny Lou Hammer. <laughs> Hammer. I like, Hammer? I think Hammer. it's Hammer. I like her picture though, too. She looks like I she's about to beat somebody's ass. Too. I freaking <laughs> love it. Fanny Lou Hamer was a civil rights activist. She co-founded the Mississippi Freeman Democratic Party in 1964. In 1971, she helped found the National Women's Political Caucus. In 1969, she launched the Freedom Farm Cooperative, buying land for black people to own and farm collectively. And we can do a little rundown of her life if you would like. She, yep, she kind of came out of that same, uh, you know, post-reconstruction um, environment. She um, grew up in the Mississippi Delta. Whenever I hear Mississippi Delta, I start sweating immediately. Like, <laughs> it does I, feel it, very mosquito and sweaty. It just makes me feel humid the moment I hear those words. <laughs> but I know something makes it feels like things might grow. If you drop a seed, get out of the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she was a powerful voice for civil and voting rights, uh, which unfortunately we are still talking about. They are sure. not given. <laughs> there should be Can't believe it. pretty much a foregone conclusion by this time, but they are not. Um, she was born October 6th. So does that make her Scorpio? That makes her a Libra. Libra. Okay. Equality. I get it. Justice. Mm-hmm. All that. In Montgomery County, Mississippi, the 20th, Oh, of sharecroppers. Oh, the 20th child, the the 20th and last child, because mama's uterus fell out and there was Fannie Lou. Yeah. Daddy. Well, daddy was a sharecropper. So as you might imagine with 20 kids and a sharecropper, she grew up in poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the age of six, she joined her family picking cotton. Uh, cotton. By the 12, she had left school to work full time. And in 1945, she married Perry Hamer, and the couple uh, worked on the, on the plantation owned by B.D. Marlowe until 1962, because Hamer was the only worker who could read and write. She also served as a plantation timekeeper. Um, in 1961, Hamer... I know. This escalated quickly, suddenly. When I was reading this, I was like, whoa, that was out of left field. But anyway, in 1961, Hamer received a hysterectomy by a white doctor without her consent... While undergoing surgery to remove a uterine tumor. Oh my God, this she, enrages me. <laughs> I know. I guess, I mean, I haven't read much about this, but according to this article, yeah. forced sterilization of black, I don't find it hard to believe at all. No. Forced sterilization by black women um, as a way to reduce the black population was so widespread, it was dubbed the Mississippi ap- appendectomy. Yeah. There's a whole sort of um, sub-conversation about like reproductive rights and birth control and Planned Parenthood because there there are some like shadowy areas there where they were trying to really reduce the population of of poor people and so it targeted um people of color very heavily Mm -hmm. but yeah that's just that just makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck and I just want to punch a person in the dick anyway <laughs> back to fanny lou yes uh, um so she became she was dubbed the mississippi appendectomy holy grossness right Ugh, gross okay um so she attended a meeting of the student Nonviolent coordinating committee um, and she became an organizer for them. And on August 31st, 1962, led 17 volunteers to register to vote in the Indianola, Mississippi courthouse. Indianola, Mississippi. We want to vote. Uh, but unfortunately, they were denied the right to vote due to unf- an, an unfair literacy, literacy test. test. Seriously. 
Yeah, the group was harassed. <laughs> this is 1962 now. Half the people I, on Facebook are I said 1962. Yeah, crazy. Um, and the group was harassed on their way home. The bus, the police stopped their bus and fined them each $100 for trumpet cards that the bus was too yellow. That was What? Yes. What does that have to do with them? They didn't paint the fucking yellow. bus. What's happening? I'm... Wait, wait, wait. The bus was too fucking yellow? 100 bucks. That what was... are we talking about? Oh, my God. So wow. that night, Marlo fired Hamer for her attempt to vote. That was the owner of the sharecropper. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. So he fired her for trying to vote, and her husband was required to stay until the harvest. You're fired. You're staying until the harvest. Uh, Marlowe confiscated much of their property. Uh, the Hamers moved to Ruleville, Mississippi, and Sunflower County with very pretty much the clothes on their back, it sounds like. Um, and in 1963, June 1963, they successfully completed a voter registration program in Charlton, South Carolina, where Hamer and several other black women were arrested for sitting on a whites-only bus station restaurant in Winona, Mississippi. Mississippi just got issues. Um, at yeah. the Winona jailhouse, she and several of the women were brutally beaten, leaving Hamer with lifelong injuries with a blood clot in her eye, kidney damage, oh and leg damage as oh well. God. In 1964, her national reputation soared as she co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which challenged the local Democratic Party's efforts to block black participation. Oh my God, this is still happening. This is still fucking happening. I know. All of this oh. sounds familiar. Um, but yeah, this was in 1964. Bullshit is still going on. Yeah. Don't sleep on these people, even just because I just want to say this too, because this came up this week. Mm -hmm. Um, it's easy to sort of dismiss kind of dumb comments about <laughs> they're so stupid, but don't sleep on these people. Don't dismiss them as, you know, just non-bright. Uh, they're, they're elected officials. And are you talking about the racist motherfuckers that are trying to fuck with voting rights? Uh, I'm talking about racist motherfuckers. I'm also talking about um, Gaspacho. Gaspacho. Who? Um, the, <laughs> you didn't hear about Mar Marjorie Taylor, what's her face? Marjorie Taylor, what's her fuck? Oh, God, I hate her. No, yeah. what is she talking about? She said that because, the, you know, the, this is sort of the ongoing, you have to wear a mask, I don't want to wear a mask, blah, 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 oh God, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, instead, I think she, she was trying to stay, it's like the Gestapo. Oh, and what she, she said, said was, it's like the Gestapo. She's so... Mm. So, so yeah. you're saying so just because say, ha, ha, she's an idiot. Yeah. She doesn't know the difference between cold soup. Oh, and yeah, but Nazis. they still have power. Yeah. But cold don't sleep on Nazis. these people. <laughs> Do not sleep on these people. <laughs> cold soup and Nazis should be the title of this episode. Although it's <laughs> not really relevant. I love that. Um, yeah. You can't take for granted just because stupid people are. So look, look, let's just be very frank. We don't really hold back or pull punches on this particular podcast when it comes to politics. Our opinions are very out there and known. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry. I used to be a very non-political person. And I, I just realized that politics touch everything. And the older I get and the more I experience discrimination in the workplace and just so many other things, I just, I, I couldn't not be pissed off and political anymore. And, you know, I'm not like super involved, but I do try to stay aware, which is a hundred times more than what I used to do, where I would just be like, I can't handle it because it's so frustrating. Um, we, so we don't hold back our opinion. So let's just be frank. Donald Trump is a stupid, stupid person. He's not smart. He's so many adjectives that I cannot even, I'm too tired to even try to utter them all. So yeah, you can't take for granted that stupid people still have power. Hello, January 6th. Hello, on January also, 6th. We slept on him in 216 though, because we're just like, he's not gonna win, he's a Totally. Yeah. On January 6th, this country damn near lost its democracy. There were people scaling the walls of the Capitol. There were people smearing shit on the inside of the Capitol. They killed people. They demolished the building. 
And they were absolutely trying to take down and take over the United States government. And if more people would be outraged about that, perhaps something would change. But we are so like complacent and, and comfortable in this fucking country. Like we just are like, yeah, that happened. And wow, that was fucking weird, huh? Dude, it is absurd and frightening that we came so close to democracy toppling. We take it so for granted. It's so fragile. I mean, it's powerful, but it's so fragile, democracy. And you can't take it for granted. I never thought that Trump would be able to do as much damage in four years as he did. I thought, we'll grit our teeth. We'll just listen to him be a moron and it'll be okay. It, no, it wasn't okay. He screwed up and fucked up so many things I never thought he would have the ability to do. So you're absolutely right. Don't sleep on stupid people. Literally, figuratively, moving on. <laughs> I totally agree. And if you're not furious that people broke into the Capitol right. waving uh, Confederate flags right. and you know, Nazi paraphernalia, you need to take a look inside. You, you know, and you're calling yourself a patriot. You need to take a look because. Well, and this this whole trucker thing that's happening in Ottawa, Canada, um, I feel like and I love Canadians. I have this love affair of, Can you know, with a Canadian everything for a long time. I feel like maybe the Canadians have been watching too much America um, because this whole trucker thing uh, has absolute roots and money in white supremacy in racist organizations. Um, you can do your own research. I mean, this is not the show for it, but um, it's it's not cool. It's not what they're making it seem like. And Canada needs to go back to being very Canadian-like because this this is so un-Canada-like, this trucker thing. <laughs> it's just not, it's not suitable. It's not okay. But anyway, uh, I yeah, agree. It's, a, it's a similar vibe to like it's a very, you know, watered down vibe to that whole January 6th shit. Um, I'm getting so mad. Okay, let's move on. I know. My blood pressure is slowly going up. Seriously. This woman, first of all, she is so gorgeous. Every time I see her picture, I'm like, God, she's gorgeous. She just has this amazing smile. We talked about her either in an early episode or on Bitch Splaining before this was its own podcast. Um, her name is Wangari Matai. She was the founder of the Greenbelt Movement and the first African-American woman to win the Nobel Prize. She authored four books, was the first woman in East and Central Africa to earn a doctorate degree. Her focus was on poverty reduction and environmental cons conservation through tree planting. And um, we probably shouldn't go into too much detail because we are a little long-winded. Not that it matters, but... We don't have a time limit anymore. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so weird. What do you want to say about her? Uh, oh, just basically in 1986, um, her movement established a pan-African Greenbelt Network um, that has exposed over 40 individuals from other African countries to the approach of basically planting trees, trying to reclaim um, some areas that have been, you know, either burned by fire or strip mined or, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Oh, so, um, so far, some countries have successfully launched such initiatives, Tanzania, Uganda, Malawi, Lesotho, Lesotho I can never say that, yeah. Ethiopia, and Zimbabwe. Um, and in September 1998, she launched a campaign of the Jubilee 2000 co Coalition. Um, so, I mean, she's just basically leading this whole movement of, you know, replanting, mm -hmm. replenishing. Um, oh, my God. They made it sound like she was a past tense. I think it was the article that I was reading, but like she's mm -hmm. her, I mean, okay. Wow. <laughs> the list of her awards is I, I would like to read through this. It is just, it's amazing. Yeah. Prolific. Okay. Mangar Matai is internationally recognized for her persistent struggle for democracy, human rights, and environmental conservation. She's addressed the UN on several occasions and spoke on behalf of women at special sessions of the General Assembly for the five-year review of the Earth Summit. That's a very long title for uh, <laughs> an assembly. She served on the Commission for Global Governance and Commission on the Future. She and the Greenbelt Movement have received numerous awards, most notably the 2005, sorry, 2004 Nobel Peace Prize. Others include the Sophie Prize, 
2004, the Petra Kelly Prize for the Environment, 2004, the Conservation Scientist Award, 2004, J. Sterling Morton Award, 2004, Wango Environment Award, 2003, Outstanding Vision and Commitment Award, 2002, Excellence Award from the Kenyan Community Abroad, 2001, Golden Arc Award, 1994, Juliet Hollister Award, 2001, Jane Addams Leadership Award, 1993, Edinburgh Medal, 1993, Hunger Project Africa Prize for Leadership, 1991, Goldman Environmental Prize, 1991, Woman of the World, 1989, Windstar Award of the Environment, 1988, Better World Society Award, 1986, Right Livelihood Award, 1984, Woman of the Year Award, 1983, also listed on UNEP's Global 500 Hall of Fame, named one of the 100 heroines of the world in 1997 when Gari was elected by Earth Times as one of 100 persons in the world who have made a difference in the environmental arena. Professor Matai also received honorary doctoral degrees from several institutions around the world, including Williams College, Massachusetts, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, University of Norway, and Yale. <laughs> She's also wow. on several boards of organizations, including UN Secretary General's Advisory Board on Disarmament, yeah. Jane Goodall Institute, nice. Women in Environment De Development Organization, which is WIDO, <laughs> uh, World Learning for International Development, Golden Cross International, Environmental Liaison Center International, Worldwide Network of Women in Environmental Work, and National Council of Women of Kenya. Damn, another busy sister. <laughs> Is somebody else that can make us feel lazy. In 2002, she was elected to parliament with an overwhelming 98% of the vote. That is so crazy. Yeah, I mean, seriously, wow. uh, what's this woman's birthday? Do we know? I feel uh, like she's going to be a Capricorn. I don't know. I'm going to look it up. We shall have to look. Um, here, you can do the next one while I look up her birthday. Okay. Because <laughs> this is important. <laughs> next one is more of a modern person. Uh, this Barbara makes total Jordan. sense. Barbara Jordan was a lawyer and educator and the first black woman from the Deep South to be a congressional representative. While in office, she ushered Texas's first state law on minimum wage. What the fuck happened in Texas, by the way? Uh, she was later elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and active in calling for the resignation of Nixon and the Watergate scandal. She had, she died of leukemia, unfortunately. Um, okay, Wingari Matai's birthday is April 1st. Uh, I forgot what year. So she's an Aries. There you go. Get out of the way. Here comes the Aries. She's going to do some shit. She will fuck some shit up. She's just going to mow down some projects. Yeah. Barbara Jordan was, her birthday's coming up February 21st. She was born in Houston. Her father, Benjamin, was a Baptist minister and a warehouse clerk. Her mother, Arlene, was a maid, housewife, and church teacher. Uh, Jordan attended the segregated Phyllis Wheatley High School, where a career day speech by Edith Sampson, who was a black lawyer, inspired her to become an attorney. Uh, Jordan was a member of the inaugural class at Texas Southern University, a black college hastily recreated by the Texas legislature to avoid having to integrate oh. the university at University of Texas. So does this predate um, the other gal's story? Uh, Texas no. Southern is 50. So Harvest this, yeah. No, this was after, I think, 1950. This is, she graduated in 56. So I'm assuming she got in in 51, right? Who did? Barbara? Uh, Jordan, yep. Okay, so Barbara Jordan was University of Texas, or would have been right before Barbara Smith Conrad. Right. So, like, that was all happening at the same time. She volunteered in 1960 for JFK's presidential campaign, and she was heading a Harris County, Harris County voter drive. Harris County is Austin, basically, uh, that yielded an 80% turnout. 80%! Wow. She twice ran success, unsuccessfully for the Texas House before winning the 1966 contest for a newly created Texas State Senate District. In Austin, she won the respect of her colleagues and worked as, to pass a state minimum wage law that covered farm workers as well. In her final year in the state Senate, Jordan's colleagues elected her president pro tem, allowing her to serve as governor for a day, June 10th, 1972, in accordance with the state tradition. I love her picture, too. She just looks like... I don't know. You're not messing around? No, she just kind of looks like 
every woman. Like she just has this very, I mean, she's clearly a badass because hello, but I don't know, she just <laughs> looks very warm. I'm sure that she was not someone to trifle with. But. No, but she does look like somebody that you could, who would champion you, I guess you could say. Yeah, she just, has, she just has that look. Like, I don't know, maybe it's the era. But I, she kind of reminds me of like a grandmother kind of figure and like she's going to sit you down with some kind of a food item and then she's going <laughs> to give you some tough love at the table, you know? <sighs> I don't know. Anyway. All right, we have one more, I think. I love this one. I'm going to let you take this one. I love her. Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Uh, and I she, love her picture. <laughs> yeah. And Sister Rosetta can swing an axe. Let me put it that way. So rock and roll was invented by a queer black woman born in 1915, Arkansas. What? Tharp was a musical <laughs> prodigy and began playing in her local church at the age of four. Elvis, Johnny Cash, and Aretha Franklin all credit her as a as an influence to their music. Wow, wow, I'm going to wow. play a little snippet for you all here. This is Sister Rosetta on the guitar. Nice. That's Sister Rosetta. I, if you look up Sister Rosetta on YouTube, there are plenty of um, videos of her. She's important for, you know, history of music, blues and rock and roll, especially. Um, and they're all sort of on um, movie film instead of video, which makes them kind of cooler. Yeah. But there's plenty of plenty of clips on there. I suggest if you're a music aficionado, you check it out. The fact that she was a queer black woman from Arkansas. Right. It's like, wow, lady. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. She's great. Um, yeah, she got, she finally got, uh, she was overlooked by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh -huh, for many, many years. But no artist has been more overdue of recognition than Sister Rosetta Tharp, yeah. whose induction into the Hall's Influences category was announced this morning. So that was when. Oh, this um, has been a while ago. Yeah, 2017. Yep, 2017. Yeah. So um, she's not in the hall, but she's in the influences category. So that's good, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's a queer black woman from Arkansas who shredded on electric guitar, belted praises both to God and secular pleasures, whoop, whoop. and broke the color line touring with white singers. She was a gospel first. She was gospel's first superstar, and she most assuredly rocked. Wow. Yep. Her first hit was. Um, a transformed spiritual called Rock Me. Um, let's see. Recorded with her soaring held notes and sexy girls back in 1938 when the latter-day king of rock and roll Elvis was still a toddler. Mm -hmm. Tharp would later hire Grand Old Opry stars, the Jordanaires, to back her. Years before they began working for Presley, who was an unabashed fan, Elvis loved Sister Rosetta, recorded the Jordanaires, Gordon Stoker. Especially her incredible guitar style. That's what really attracted Elvis to her picking. Uh, he liked her singing, but he liked that picking first because it's so different. <laughs> cool. <laughs> but yeah, Chuck Berry, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, um, you know, all they all credit her as being an influence to them. Well, I'm going to have to go listen to her music. I, I love that little clip you played. I love that style, that blues rock and roll love it right so uh and she's yeah. kind of like on on those pictures too she's like shredding this like mean looking electric guitar but she's dressed sort of like a church lady yeah <laughs> yeah I sort love of it. a nice coat like hair fixed nicely uh -huh. you know, necklace and everything is it's it's pretty cool yeah but she's she's one of, she's one of those people like some people are just photogenic like mm -hmm. look if i was a musician or a singer or an actress or you know, somebody, you would never see a picture of me like this, <laughs> my face, like I'd have to get major Botox because my face is very expressive and like both sides of my mouth move in like different planes. Both my eyebrows are going like, so when you take a candid picture of me, particularly when I'm talking, like when we do live videos and I try to capture a still frame for the, 
for the post. My <laughs> face is all over the place. I look like my face is Play-Doh on a hot day. It's just all. <laughs> and this, this lady, and she's belting it out. And it's just like, I don't know. Some people are just so photogenic. She is, yeah. She's just photogenic. She well, and she's got one of those very like her personality is very big. Even when she's standing, nothing it just shines out. Yeah, totally shows in the photo. Mm. Well, that was a loaded show full of (laughs) black badassness. Yes, we hope you learned something about someone's badass that you don't, you haven't heard before, uh, who happens to be a lady. And we hope you're inspired to question the history you were taught, especially in the days of today when books are still, they're still trying to ban history books. I don't get it. We're back in the 50s and 60s. It's so I know. Well, and if you know of a place where they are on the right side of history where they ban books, let us know. I haven't heard of any. So mm-hmm. anyway, maybe get yourself some new sheroes. Yeah. This podcast uploads every two weeks. We love your input, your ideas. You can email us at kelly at thebitchwhisperer.me. Let me tell you why. Because I tried to set up a Gmail account for us. And I have this problem with all of my branding because all of my branding has the word bitch in it. uh, Because I'm trying to take the word back. We'll talk about that more another time in case you're new here. But I tried to set up a Gmail account for us that was like Kelly and Lisa at BitchPod or, you know, something. You can't use the word bitch in Gmail. (laughs) So I just said, fuck it. I'll just use mine. So it's kelly at thebitchwhisperer.me. And you can also find us on Instagram at bitchstory.pod. We would love you to follow us over there. So thanks for hanging out with us, bitches. That's it for us. Right. Y'all have a great week. Happy Valentine's Day and all that good stuff. Yeah. And go make bitch story. Bye.